Today's scripture is in Hebrews. It's Hebrews 12, and we're going to start with verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be wary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not his sons. Besides this, we have already earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it become defiled that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. I'm just going to ask, for those of you that um, were here early enough to write things on pieces of paper, um, we're going to bring the balls down the side, so if you can just pass them towards the middle, and we'll collect those up. And I think the ones have been collected from the top. If you are wanting to turn to another passage, I'm going to be reading just now from 2 Samuel chapter 11. There's quite a long passage there. So if you want to turn there, you can read that with me. For anyone who may have arrived a little bit late and not know why we're collecting papers, we are not running a raffle or lottery or anything like that. But I invited people during worship to write down things that hinder and the sin that so easily entangles. And if you didn't write stuff down on a piece of paper, it doesn't matter. God can still deal with that stuff. But that's just a little bit of a focus to get us going. And I'm going to have those brought to me in a moment. If you still have a piece of paper that you haven't given in, just wave it and we'll... There's one at the front here. And you can just bring the rest to me. So I realized this week um, I mentioned that my wife Valerie and I are leaving America land, as I call it. We've been here for three years we kind of moved a little while ago from months to weeks, and I realized yesterday or today it's about 18 days left to go. So, whew, the last, I'd say the last two months have been a bit of a roller coaster, just trying to kind of keep up with what's going on and get everything done and do all the stuff we need to do before we leave here and go home. And so, people have asked me how am I feeling about going home, and 
Part of it is that I'm really excited to be back home. I've got lots of friends there, my family are there. There's some amazing opportunities to be involved in. So I'm really excited about being at home, but I'm not as excited about leaving here. It's been really great being part of the Regen community. We've loved living in Oakland. We've had some amazing and some difficult times in America land, but it's been a really good time overall, I think. And we're certainly gonna miss a lot of people. I feel like in a year and a half of preaching, I've used up all my good jokes at Regen, but I do have a new favorite joke which I heard about a week ago, which I really like, and it goes like this. Why can no one hear when a pterodactyl goes to the toilet? Because the P is silent. <laughs> True story. So I've done this activity on a bunch of camps, and I mentioned that I did it two weeks ago on, on Lake Shasta. I was on a houseboat camp speaking to a bunch of youth, and how this works really well is if I get a few moments to kind of look through these and read them before I read them out to you, which clearly hasn't happened. So I'm just trusting that this is going to work anyway. And I just want to invite you right now, while I take a piece of paper out and fold them, to close your eyes and just to... Enter into a moment of really just being able to listen. I guess if we ever needed Regen to be a safe place, today especially is one of those moments. As I mentioned at the end, there's going to be an opportunity for people to stand up and invite others to pray for them. There's going to be an opportunity for us to take things which are hindering us and sin which is entangling us and just ask God to really deal with it and take it away to bring new life, to start a healing process. And I'm not necessarily going to read out all of these papers because there's a lot of papers. But kind of the idea of this is the understanding, I kind of mentioned it before, that in this room, a lot of us are struggling with things. For some of us, it's stuff that is hindering us. And I'll go into that a little bit later. Some of those things, as I mentioned, could be good things. For others of us, it's sin. It's stuff that's entangling us. It's things that we've done. It might be things that we fail to do on a regular basis. It might be things that have been done to us. And I imagine that whatever's written on these pieces of paper, that there are possibly some bigger and deeper and more hectic things that people didn't feel free to write down on paper. And just being able to be in the freedom of knowing that God cares about that stuff as well. God cares about the things we didn't feel able to write down. God cares about the things we didn't feel able to share. God really cares about things we have maybe decided that He doesn't want to heal or forgive or rescue us from because... We've prayed so many times about them. We've asked him to do stuff, and for some reason that stuff has just stayed with us. So just realizing that there's a lot more stuff that is here, but also just the idea that is mentioned in the book of Corinthians when the writer speaks about the church as a body, that when one person hurts, we all hurt. And so as I read out some of the things that are mentioned on these pieces of paper, I don't want you to be listening out for your paper, but I rather want you to be thinking that all of these are your paper. Every single piece of paper that has somebody's hurt or pain or frustration or distraction is something that affects us as a body because the people around us are people we care about. If you're visiting Regen for the first time and you don't feel a part of us, then we still care about you and God cares about you and maybe you belong to another church or another congregation and that's great. But just knowing that today while you're part of us, like, we really care about these things. These are our things. Collectively, this is some of the junk that Regen is facing at the moment. 
These are some of the distractions. And just as you listen to them, keep your eyes closed, but just listen to them and just be praying and just be inviting the Holy Spirit to really start dealing with this stuff. And especially at the end as we give people an opportunity to respond. Throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. For us today in our midst, some of those things are busyness, tiredness, disappointment in God for failures in the church, accepting that I'm the apple of God's eye, I don't think I love God, discipline, lots of things I want to do when I do have that time alone, prioritizing, talking out of both sides of my mouth at work, sometimes being a lover of God, sometimes being a lover of the world, alcohol consumption, unforgiveness, shyness, substance abuse, perfectionism, depression. I don't like studying the word and praying like I used to. Fear, laziness, selfishness, disobedience, misuse of my talents by bearing or squandering them, fear and selfishness, pride, current pop culture, unfaithfulness, greed, anger, lust, pride, what others think of me, self-reliance, my anger sinning with my mouth, lust, I struggle to trust God's will and submit to it above my own will or the will of others, seeking the approval of people over the approval of God, my phone, lack of discipline or motivation to seek and pursue God, busyness, sexual sins, worry, I'm a coward, I numb myself to escape, loneliness, lust, masturbation, too worried about what people think. I discount my importance or purpose for God. My relationship with my sons. Fear of rejection. Lack of courage to stand up for Christ amongst the unknowing. Vanity. Lust in my own sinful nature. Giving Christ the first of my time. The idol of entertainment. Cell phone. TV, video games, being unfaithful, afraid at times to tell friends of my Savior, jealousy, midlife crisis. Lust has been a very long time struggle, an obsession with sex, my appearance or lack of it, work obsession. Struggle with condemnation feelings. Feel as if I just can't do this Christian life well. Discouragement. TV shows, Netflix, video games, social media. Sexual immorality and laziness in seeking God. I feel like I'm a sexual addict. My career. Worry about the future. Worrying about what people think of me. Unforgiveness. 
lust, pornography, anger. Being a mother, the love for my child taking up all my energy and thoughts. I've been forgetting Jesus and what he did to change my life. Lust, unforgiveness, giving up control of my life over to God. So just as we listen to what is the long list, what does come out is that there's a number of things that just seem to repeat, that come out again and again, that a lot of different people are struggling with a lot of the same things. That different people are struggling with different things, that a lot of people mention things that hinder, that a lot of people mention sins that entangle. And as we look into this time, as we create a space at the end to just invite God, invite the Holy Spirit to come, we believe that we have a God that loves us deeply. We believe that we have a God that wants to deal with the stuff in our lives way more than we do and who is full of grace and who is full of love and who is just wanting to see us living lives to the absolute full. And so, God, we come before you today. I just lift up this bowl of people's hurts and despairs and distractions, and we place it as an offering before you, God, and just invite you through your Spirit to already start dealing with that stuff, to really be touching us, to really be healing us, to be filling us with your presence, to be giving us the belief that it's possible, to be giving us faith to ask, courage to step out, boldness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to get back to those in a little bit, and I just want to really thank you. For those of you that wrote stuff down, a lot of that stuff is really difficult to write down. Maybe there's some stuff that some of you, this is the first time you've written it down. It's the first time, in a sense, you've spoken it out loud or maybe heard it spoken out loud. I truly believe that when we bring sin, distractions, into the light, it really makes it so much easier for us to deal with it. When we share it with each other, confess your sins to each other so that you can pray for each other and be healed. Like that is a vehicle that God really uses, finding people that we trust and being able to share these things and invite them into our lives to hold us accountable, to walk the journey with us. And so whatever happens at the end of this morning is going to be a start. It's going to be the beginning of a journey and or maybe the continuation of a journey for some of you. But I just really want to encourage you to take the opportunity that's there to bring it before God and to invite that journey to start. But first I want to focus a little bit on sin, and I spoke of 2 Samuel chapter 11. And this is a very well-known story. Maybe most of us know aspects of the story. It's the story of David and Bathsheba, and I just want to read a section of it. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messages to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I'm pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants, 
and did not go down to his house. When David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked him, Haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, The ark in Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my master Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. And then a little bit further, the beginning of chapter 12, the first seven verses. The Lord sent Nathan the prophet to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. This is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah, and if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says, Out of your own household I am going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. So that was chapter 12. I read a little bit further, 1 to 14. And so the consequence in this whole story, and it kind of sounds a little bit soap opera-ish or like a complicated movie plot, but the consequence is that David's son dies. And that might seem harsh. And it is harsh. And I think just a little PS that I'd like to kind of inject into this message is that it's okay for us to wrestle with the Bible sometimes. It's okay for us to struggle with passages that are hard. I think we grow up and, and we get indoctrinated with a sense that the Bible said it, it's okay. And there's a sense of truth in that in terms of 
God is just and loving and will do the things that he does. But there's some passages that just don't make sense. And there's some passages that feel a little bit harder to take on. And I think it's good. I think it's healthy for us to be able to wrestle with those. The Bible is full of stories of people that wrestled with God, that, that try to figure out what his kingdom meant, that try to really understand fairness and justice and love and the outpouring of the law. And so we should encourage those things. And so David's son dies. It feels harsh, but at the same time, the consequence of David's sin is that a number of men die. A trusted soldier dies. And what's interesting is that David is so corrupt through this whole story, and every opportunity, Uriah just acts in the way that David is meant to act. David, we later find out, New Testament, David is described as a man after God's own heart. That description doesn't come from this story. Uriah would be described as a man after God's own heart. Every single time he comes home from the battlefield and he refuses to go home and lie with his wife, he gets drunk and he still does the honorable thing. And then David even sends his death warrant along with him. And so a number of people die, a trusted soldier dies, a marriage is destroyed, and the king's reputation is tarnished. What stood out for me as I was just reading the story again is David writes a letter to Job. In it he wrote, put your eye in the front line where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. Like it's not subtle. It's not like here's this battle plan and hopefully it will kill my enemy. It's like do this so that this man will die. The king orders murder of somebody who's totally trusted, who's done nothing wrong. And so the king's name is tarnished. God speaks right at the end that by doing this you've made the enemies of the law show utter contempt. And so God's name is tarnished. So there's a lot of hectic consequence that comes out of this. And the question in this long soap opera of kind of sin after sin after sin, the first question is this, what was David's first sin? Just take a moment, think back on the story. What was the first thing that David did wrong? And there's a bunch of different things, and some of you may have heard this said before. I never realized this until I heard it in a preach. But verse 1 is a verse you fly over to get to the meat of the story, but it's actually quite significant. It says, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. So there's this time when the kings are meant to be out at war, and David commits what might be seen as a tiny little bit of compromise. He sends out a trusted general, everything's taken care of, it's all fine, but there's a time when the king was supposed to be out at war and the king was not at war and calamity ensued. The smallest little compromise, the smallest white lie, it usually starts with something small. Nobody goes out and murders somebody. Nobody goes out and chooses to commit adultery. It starts with allowing something that shouldn't be there. It starts with having a second thought and allowing that thought to linger. It starts with harboring bitterness or thoughts of revenge or being slighted or whatever it is. And the big sins, the ones that have huge consequence, the ones that really break things down, they generally start with something really small. If David had not been compromising and had gone out to war, none of the rest of the story happens. And so we need to be careful about the small compromises. We need to be careful about the things we let slide. The but statements, but it's only that, or it's not such a big deal, or it's just a white lie. And then each one leads to another slightly bigger one. 
Not because any sin is necessarily worse than any other sin, but the sins have greater consequence. And as David piles them up, they start to affect more and more people. And eventually it affects the whole nation. There's this consequence of David's family that is going to be affected for years to come because of the way that he mistreated the name of God and the way that he just made a mockery of it. And what's important is that at any part in the story, this is one of the most significant things, at any part of the story, David could have interrupted the path of sin and just changed things and made things less serious. At any point, he's not in the right place where he's supposed to be. The kings are out at war. There's this moment where he spots Bathsheba. He can end it there. He calls her across. He finds out she's married. He can end it there. He sleeps with her. He finds out she's pregnant. A much bigger thing and maybe a lot harder to end when the king is the one that's done it. But at each step, there's a way for things to be less messy. And because he's trying to cover, because he's trying to make the thing unnoticeable, it just gets worse and worse and bigger. More people get drawn into it. More lies are told. More deception. And it just ends up being such a mess. And I think with a lot of the things that were written down on paper, the distractions, some of those sins, with a lot of them, there's a time when that pattern or that path can be interrupted. And if it's not done, it will lead to something bigger. But David repeatedly chose not to interrupt the path of sin, and the consequence was death. And the consequence of sin is always death. I think spiritually there's always the ramifications, but on a number of levels, if you take a sin to its logical end conclusion, it might be a physical death, it might be a spiritual death, it might be an emotional death, it might be a relational death, it might be a community death. But the consequence of sin is always death. If it's left unchecked, it is always going to destroy and break down and bring harm to you. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I think one of the biggest problems in the church is that too often we treat sin as an irritation or a pest. We treat it as something that is there that's a little bit annoying, that makes us feel bad, that brings a little bit of guilt, that's something that we need to deal with, but we don't give it the seriousness that God treats it with. In 1 Peter 5 verse 8, he describes it like this. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion. In James 1, it's described like this, verse 13 to 15. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So again, there's that pattern, that path, that desire leads to temptation, which leads to sin, which if unchecked, gives birth to death. It's a progression, as we saw with David and I think sometimes we slip into the idea of thinking that temptation is a sin. Temptation is not a sin. Temptation happens to us all. Temptation happened to Jesus when he went into the desert for 40 days and the devil came face to face to bring temptation to him. That is not a sin. How we react to temptation, whether we cut it off, whether we kill it, like Jesus did using scripture three times, it is written, pointing back to God, pointing back to the truth, cutting out the lie of sin. 
if we refuse to deal with temptation and just leave it unchecked, it, it, it becomes sin. And if we refuse to deal with that and leave that unchecked, it gives birth to death. We need to learn to take sin seriously. And we need to learn to deal definitively with sin, absolutely with sin. And what that means is that if you've got a problem with pornography, pushing the porn mags under the bed to the back is not probably your greatest move. If you've got a problem with alcohol abuse, then having alcohol in your fridge but maybe pushed to the back or having it out in the garage or whatever is not the greatest way. We need to deal definitively with sin. Put things in place that will stop these things and other things that take us down from happening. Really take things seriously. I've never been to the AA, but I've heard stories and stereotypes and all that kind of thing. And I know that Alcoholics Anonymous, they have this idea of the fact that 5, 10, 20 years later, you still get up and it's my name is Brett and I'm an alcoholic. And I know that they have their own purpose and reasoning for that. So I'm not wanting to mock that. But just the idea of being identified forever as the particular thing that has dragged you down, I don't like that idea. I like the idea of, for example, that I'm not so much a murderer. This isn't a true story. As a child of God who has committed murder. Well, I'm not so much an adulterer, but as a child of God who has maybe committed adultery. I'm not a liar, but I'm a child of God that has maybe lied. I'm not a luster or whatever it is. Because I strongly believe that Jesus frees us from having to be known as a sinner, having to be identified by sin. It's not that the moment you become a Christian, you stop sinning and you live the perfect life or anything like that. But the moment we become a Christian, the moment we invite God into our lives, the moment we follow Jesus, we take on a new identity. The whole picture of baptism is that, going under the water, dying to your old self. The old has gone, the new has come, being raised up, a new person, a new life. You're no longer that person, that identity, that sin, that mess. You are now a child of God. When God looks at us, He sees Jesus. He sees the sacrifice. He sees what the blood of Jesus was able to bring about. I think part of doing communion, which we do every week here, is remembering that. The body that was broken, the blood that was spilt, so that we can be free. So that we can now identify as children of God. I like this passage at the start of Ephesians 2, verse 1 to 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Paul realizing, recognizing, this is who you were, this is who you used to be, this is who all of us used to be, but God, because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even while we were dead in transgressions. 
But I do believe with kind of AA, what really helps is the idea of being aware of where our temptations come from, being aware of those things that have tripped us up, that have knocked us down, being aware that if I have a problem with alcohol, maybe hanging out in bars isn't the best place to be socializing with my friends. So the awareness of where my likeliness of sin is helps me to make better decisions that are going to make temptation less and help me to be stronger. Ephesians 4 verse 27 says this. It's talking about anger, but I think it goes greater than that. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. And so just this picture of the fact that there is an enemy, the fact that there is someone out to get us, the fact that the devil is described as a roaring lion, and just the picture of that. Maybe in America land it's a little bit harder to think of. Not that in South Africa we have lions roaming the street. But just spend some time. Go watch a YouTube video, Lion Kill. Take a look at how that goes down. And just realize that when a lion is roaring, when a lion is looking for its prey, nothing is going to get in the way. Nothing is going to stop it. It's not wanting to give you a bad day. It's not wanting to irritate you. It's not wanting to scratch you. A hungry lion is going for the kill. That our enemy has been described as a hungry lion. That don't even give the devil a foothold. And so it's speaking specifically in one example, if you have anger, don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. Deal with it because if you're harboring those thoughts, that's giving the devil a foothold. You wake up the next morning and it becomes bitterness and it becomes envy and jealousy and, and suddenly it, it breeds into a bigger thing. Deal with sin decisively. Cut it off. Don't let it grow. Don't even allow the devil to stick his fingers in the crack because he will burst your door open. He will thrust in with everything he's got and his idea and his intent is to kill you and destroy you and it's important that we realize that we do have an enemy and this is his desire john 10 10 the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy i have come that they may have life and have it to the full the thief only comes to steal and kill and destroy these things that we wrote down on pieces of paper are things that steal they steal our time they steal other things that we could be doing. They steal things that we could be putting our focus in. They steal things that could be being poured into our lives. They steal opportunities that we have to help other people, to build the kingdom of God. They are lies. There are many lies on these pieces of paper, things that have been told to you, things that have been said to you, things that have been said about you, and they kill. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy but Jesus says, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. And so the purpose of dealing with sin, part of it is that it's destructive to you and to the people around you. And so dealing with sin is not just kind of being in a good place with God and just making sure there's no black marks against your name. But it's really an awareness and a sense that sin is a destructive force against the whole community. That sin breaks you down. That sin breaks down relationships. And so dealing with it actually builds up community. Dealing with it allows us greater scope of helping each other. Dealing with sin is the realization that God has something better. I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. If you're sitting in life and you are existing or you feel like you're in a rut or you feel like you're surviving or making it through, that is not the plan that God has for your life. God has a plan that involves thriving. God has a plan that involves building up His kingdom. God has a plan that involves transformation of societies, of families, of schools, of neighborhoods. 
of immigrants' lives, of sex workers, children that are being trafficked. God has a picture for each of them and often an invitation for us to get involved in that stuff. If we are just making it through and just barely surviving and getting through, that is not the plan that God has for us. And I think with this passage, there's a realization that the devil is like a lion, that he wants to steal, kill, and destroy. The consequence of that is not that we should fear the devil at all. God is bigger, more powerful than the devil. God ultimately wins the battle. We don't need to be afraid of the devil, but we also mustn't mess with him. We also mustn't treat him lightly. We also mustn't allow sin because that gives the devil a stronghold and he will build on that. The sin that so easily entangles. And then just a little bit more briefly, for many of us, probably the bigger problem interrupting a solid run with God, besides maybe the fact that we refer to it as a walk, is the everything that hinders. Because it's not always so obvious. I think when sin is happening, we generally know sin. We recognize sin. We know the things that hurt people. We know the things that hurt ourselves. For the most part, sin is easy to see. But everything that hinders is not always so obvious because some of those things can be good things. And some of those things not necessarily bad things. Maybe there are such things as neutral things. And because we don't see it coming, they're things that we get caught up in. I loved the fact that at least two people wrote cell phone on the piece of paper, not because people had to write cell phone on the piece of paper, but because I feel for a lot of us, that is something that comes in the way of God. I think the internet, television, entertainment, like a lot of these things are things that if out of control can really start to reign and take over our lives. And so it can be good stuff and it can be too much of good stuff. For example, church involvement. Like how can church involvement possibly be a bad thing? Well, maybe if God has called you to make disciples, to share good news with your friends who don't know him, to look after the least of these. But if you're somebody who spends your whole waking life in church meetings, Sunday church and prayer meeting, Monday morning prayer meeting and Bible study and home group and all these kind of things that you're never actually doing stuff that God's called you to do. Then for some people, and I don't know if it's anyone here necessarily, but there's people in life, the best thing they can do is stop some of their church activities. Too much of church meetings can be a bad thing if God is calling you to spend time with your neighbor that doesn't know Jesus. And it can relate to anything, too much of anything. If you spend your life praying when God has asked you to do something else. If you go to another country to share the good news with them when you know that God wants you to meet your neighbor back home, that can be a bad thing. If God has told you to do something specifically and you're turning your back on that and doing something else, however good that other thing is, like if God has called you to something, you need to do that. And so I think this keeps coming back. The things that hinder keep coming back to those three things that I often speak about. Our time, our treasure, so our money and our things, and our talent. And the question, have you given these to God? Have I given God my time? Have I given God my money, my things, my stuff, my house, my car? Have I given God my talent, my skills? Are there opportunities where God maybe wants me to use some of those things that I use, kind of putting bread on the table, in other ways as well, possibly, to build up the kingdom of God, to help out a neighbor, to build relationship? 
And then finally, as we head to the close, back to Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. How do we do that? Verse 2, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The key to this is fixing our eyes upon Jesus, to be looking at him, to be inviting him to show us the course of the race that we are meant to be running, to be listening to the fact that he is cheering us on, to be inviting the fact that he equips us with his spirit, with everything we need to do all the good works he's called us to. I want to invite you to, again, just close your eyes. Just take a moment. We're going to close off now. The end of the service may be a little bit messier than normal, but that's great. And I want to close off with an invitation to a time of ministry. And I'm going to talk you through a few of the basics of how I'd like to do this, and it might be different to what you've done before. It might be different to how you're used to doing things, and that's okay. But the first thing I'm going to ask is if anyone is wanting to be prayed for today. Maybe... You wrote something down on the piece of paper for the first time ever. Maybe it is something you've written down a bunch of times and you've asked God for a number of occasions and you just don't see Him working and you really want Him to do it. Then I just want to ask you to really just take a risk and to just step out in boldness and bring that thing one more time and just submit yourself to God and just say, God, just deal with this. And so there's going to be an invitation to deal with the everything that hinders in your life. Maybe you didn't get a chance to write it down on the paper. Maybe as I was speaking, God was tugging at something on your heart and it's something different. Maybe you wrote down a bunch of stuff and God is reminding you of that one thing maybe you couldn't write down. Maybe you've never told anyone. And so everything that hinders, the sin that entangles, I kind of mentioned it briefly before. What are things that you've done? What are things that you haven't done? What are things that you failed to do that you know you were supposed to do and maybe those have left a legacy in your life? Maybe it's the guilt of a relationship that you didn't put in as much as you could have. Maybe it's some activity or some action that you were supposed to do and you didn't. And then the last one, which is often the more painful one. What is stuff that was done to you? Stuff that people said, maybe stuff that people did physically or verbally that caused you a lot of pain, a lot of hurt. Maybe it's caused you to respond with unforgiveness or to close your heart down. And close yourself off from other relationships because you don't want to get hurt again in that way. I really believe that God is wanting to deal with this stuff today. And I really want to give an invitation for us to be able to deal with it. And so I'm going to ask you in a moment to stand up. And then I'm going to ask that we gather around each other. If there are people wanting prayer today, that gather around each other and pray for people. And I'm just going to ask that that happens in a few different ways. And we'll see if anyone wants to be prayed for first and then take it from there. So I want to invite you right now. If any of those categories felt like something that you're really wanting to ask God to deal with today and you really want a few moments of prayer you're not going to have to tell anyone your stuff you can share if you want to but you're not going to be forced to but if you want to ask God today to deal with that stuff I just want to invite you to stand where you are because we'd love to pray for you and I'm not going to drag this out so if you're wanting prayer today please stand And so how this is going to work is I just want to ask a couple of things just to keep it really simple and safe. We really want this to be a safe place. And what we're asking is we're asking God to come and work. We're not asking 
us to come up with any clever prayers. We're just going to stand alongside these people and put our hand on what God is doing and what God wants to do. And so I want to ask if we can keep this gender specific. So if there's guys standing up, if guys can stand with them and pray for them. If there's women standing up, if other women can go stand with them. But if at least two or three people can go and stand near some of these people that are standing up and just ask if it's okay, just lay a hand on their arm or their shoulder and just be ready to pray with them. So if we can just do that, just where you see a guy or a girl standing, just go and stand with them as another man or woman. If while you're praying, while people are praying, you realize you want prayer, feel free to stand up. If no one sees you, come to the front. I can pray for you or we can find people to pray for you. But just start praying where you are. I want to invite you to do this. I want to invite you to keep your eyes open while you pray for the person. If the person who wants to be prayed for, if you have something that you want to share and you want to tell the guys you want to pray for this, you can do that now. If not, just tell them what your name is and let's have a time of prayer. And I want to invite you for the first minute or two to not say any words, but just let your prayer start off with these words. Come Holy Spirit. And just wait. Wait on God to come and do stuff. We don't need to have the clever words to make it happen. But we're just putting our hand on acknowledging that this person is standing before God with a need and just standing alongside them and saying, I want to bless that. I want to encourage that more of you, God. And while you're standing with them, just quietly in your head, just pray, Father, fill them. Fill them with your presence. Come meet this need. So just start doing that where you are. If you're sitting down and this is rather strange because this isn't something you've seen before or done before and you want to go stand near where it's happening and just watch, that's cool. Go stand alongside and just see people. And then after a minute or two, if you feel like God is giving you some words, if you want to speak some life and hope and prayer, then feel free to do that. But just take some time just inviting God to come. And we're just going to do this for the rest of the service. While we're praying for people, there's an opportunity for you if you're waiting to come and receive the communion at the front if you love Jesus you're invited to take part in this with us just a remembrance of what he said at the table when he said do this in remembrance of me that the cracker and the grape juice is symbolic of Jesus body and blood broken and shed for you so just while Jane leads us in worship or plays songs in the background at any moment come forward and do that so there's going to be a bunch of things happening all at once don't worry about it when you finish being prayed for you're welcome to do communion take as long as you want Let's just start doing that. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come. We invite you to do the work that is needed. Father, just bring healing and bring restoration. Thank you, God, that you don't see us in that broken, messed up state that we were in. But by your grace, you welcome us. You call us children of God. And, and your desire is for us to be free from everything that hinders and from the sin that so easily entangles. And so we are just asking what we know is on your heart already. But come, Holy Spirit, make it a reality in our lives. Just come and bless what's being done in the name of Jesus. We thank you, Lord. If while prayer is happening, if while communion is happening, you realize actually you wanted to get some prayer, I'll be in the front row. We can make it happen. Just come forward to me or just stand up and ask people around you to do it. But let's just spend this time. Let's really just pray into these things and pray for freedom and life and hope.